Sometimes the key to what you want is right under that flower pot on your windowsill. Many agencies are working to improve customer experience. An important element of that is convenience in identification and verification of those accessing digital services. Now the Veterans Affairs Department has expanded its use of login.gov for that very purpose. We get more now from VA's digital services expert, John Rahagi. Mr. Rahagi, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Login.gov is not unknown at this point to VA for some of the services offered. Tell us the extent until this point of your use of login.gov and what you get out of it. So login.gov is available on VA.gov, on My Healthy Vets, and on VA's mobile flagship. And we have plans to further expand and increase the adoption for login.gov. It is a government-built and maintained credential it's driven by human-centered design, so there's been a huge focus on making sure that it's easy to use. And we know that for our users, they really do want to have a modern, secure, and reliable government-provided credential to sign in. Is the alternative someone creating an account? And when I've used login.gov for citizen-facing services, it just kind of comes up automatically, and I don't have to do anything. I thought that was really cool when I when I found that out. Yeah, well, th- that is the idea, to improve that user experience that the agencies like VA or like the other partner agencies that are using USA Jobs, if they have login.gov, then you can use that same way of signing in that you signed into that first agency that you went to. So we're talking about really improving the overall experience for veterans as they interact, not just with the VA, but with the whole government. Sure. So when you have a login.gov account, it's the same credential that you can use across the services in the government that do use login.gov. Correct. That's right. And so we know that is important because the veteran experience extends beyond, of course, uh, the VA. As I mentioned, USA Jobs, there's about 30 percent of veterans that work for the federal government, which means they would have to go there to apply for a job. And so we're really looking at creating just an overall better veteran experience. And for the agency that is deploying a digital service and wants to use login.gov, what does the agency, what do the tech staff need to do to get it hooked into your application? So any agency that wants to use login.gov can reach out to the General Services Administration and the login.gov team. And there is a a process driven by what's called an interagency agreement that will allow them to essentially procure login.gov. And then they would work with the login.gov team to implement into their own tech stack, depending on what they're using. So they have a lot of developer documentation and a lot of guidance. So I think any agency that wants to adopt login.gov will be able to do so fairly easily. So you need that agreement and it sounds like you need to be able to interact with an API. Would that be a good way to put it? Yeah, an API. You need to be able to interact with that and have a developer team available in order to figure out the details of the integration, depending on what the agency stack is, you know, what they're using for identity and access management, and then they'd figure out where and how login.gov would be implemented. And there's a lot of guidance on that. There's a lot of open source information that login.gov has. They really are focused on that customer experience, not just for users, but for agencies as well to make it as easy as possible. Sure. And you said that VA is now expanding the use of login.gov to other services. Give us a rundown on those. So we are continuing to develop products and services. And as we do, we want to make sure that login.gov is available as a way to sign in. Additional mobile apps, we want to make sure that login.gov is available as a way to sign in. And we're continuing to work with the login.gov team to figure out how we can increase the identity proofing availability 
for our users. VA is a very diverse user base. There's a lot of veterans struggling in various ways. And so we have plans to work with the login.gov team as well as the My Healthy Vet coordinator network across our VA facilities to allow vets to identity proof in person that would allow them to have a login.gov account that is fully ready for them to use when they're at home or remote. And this would be a unique thing for us that would really not only help our veterans and users, but help login.gov with having more proof users that can then use the service in other agencies. We're speaking with John Rahagi. He's digital services expert at the Veterans Affairs Department. Could this be used, say, in a way for people to arrive at a VA facility and proof themselves to be able to get themselves to an appointment? It could be. This is something that we're going to have a dedicated team in investigating and doing what we call discovery to see how we can make that entire experience that you're describing easier and see what role login.gov can play in that. Maybe give us a little wider aperture on what you're doing with respect to customer experience beyond login.gov at VA. Yeah, that's a great question. So the office that I'm in, the office of the chief technology office in collaborating with all of the other parts of the VA, we're all figuring out how we can streamline the entire experience. So a big part of this is consolidation. We're trying to move all the products and services to va.gov to have that as the front door so that a user would just go to one site at the VA, not have to go to the, the many sites that exist today, and all products and services would be there. And so we're really looking at that end-to-end experience for a user from when they first get to a VA property, sign in, have access to everything that they need, and then can be on their way. And we've made a lot of progress. We have a a lot to go, of course. There's lots of stuff to, to work on. But that's what we're looking at in terms of providing a really streamlined experience. Because when I've been to the VA site, it looks like you're there already. It's very much oriented to veterans as opposed to being oriented toward any other visitor that might come by. And the first thing you see is, I want to X, Y, Z and different case history. So you can take it beyond that, do you think? Well, yes, the VA.gov has made a tremendous amount of progress. It is, a, it is a great site. We're working on getting all of the other products and services that VA has onto VA.gov. So there's lots of health products and services, for example, that are not there yet. And there are still some e-benefits products and services that are not on VA.gov. We want to put everything in one place and then make sure that that user experience guides the user through all the potential products and services that they could want and make sure that the accessibility is there and that it's really easy to navigate. So we have made a lot of progress, absolutely, as you've noted, but we're always thinking, how can we continue to improve it? How can we address all the use cases that we know are out there? Because there's a lot of different ones that relate to how veterans interact with their benefits and services, or if they rely on caregivers or delegates or some use case like that. So we have all these considerations that we're looking at as we continue to improve the experience. And bringing it back around to login.gov, can that credential also invoke the idea of welcome back? That is to say, the site will recognize that credential, know what happened previously, and say, you know, John or Mary Doe, you're having this particular ongoing medical issue, and last time you accessed these services, pick up where you left off. That idea, the same thing you get in some of the commercial sites where they know your ordering history, for example. Well, what login.gov does is maintains the identity portion. So once you've identity proved, then you wouldn't need to do that again when accessing services. Now, when you access a specific service or an account, 
that's up to us, the VA, to make sure that it, it's, it has all that information there and you can pick up where you left off. So we are working on that experience, absolutely. Login.gov wouldn't be a part of doing that. It would tell us this is this person, this is, you know, they're returning because they've already been identity proofed. But then it would be up to us to make sure that sure. the experience is like you described, where it shows everybody, here's your account, here's all the things you were working on, and they can pick up where they left off. And the expansion of login.gov to these other services, can that happen under the original memorandum of understanding that you have with GSA? Or do you need a new one each time you, you add it in? No, right now, the, the agreement we have will be able to cover the expansion for our, for integrating you know other products and services. If we do need to draft up another agreement, we can do that. It's it's much easier given that it's government to government than a traditional sort of procurement process. All right. So it sounds like your advice to other agencies on the CX journey is to consider login.gov. One other question on identity proofing. To what extent Mm -hmm. is a name less and less relevant in identity spoofing or proofing? Because people have the same name. I always wondered how people named John Smith get along in the digital world at all. But that's becoming less and less an important element, isn't it, in the whole proofing idea? That's a good question. And proofing is one of those evolving disciplines in terms of digital identity because it's going to continue to be complex and we're going to continue to need to evaluate what attributes are needed to prove someone's identity. So Yes, there's a lot of common names out there, but that is that's why it's important to collect additional pieces of information, including having a photo ID of some type that we can match against a DMV or login.gov can match against a DMV, for example, in order to have a high level of confidence that a person is who they say they are. And so it's an important thing to consider that as this evolves, login.gov and any, any other credential is going to continue to evaluate what methods exist. And then we're going to have to work with them to make sure that it makes sense for our user population. It's still an unsettled question to a degree. All right. Well, if anyone can settle it, I have a feeling you'll be able to. John Rahagi is digital services expert at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Log into the Federal Drive. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then 
sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to you know certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.